How do you have people feel like they own what they're doing? The thing about creativity is you are trying to get something new and original, but it is coming from within that group. They have to feel like they're really doing it and then make a difference. They're not a cog in a big wheel. They actually have some meaning in what they're doing and they know it. You may not know Ed Catmull's name, but there's almost no doubt you're familiar with his work. As the co-founder of Pixar, he's responsible for helping to create movies ranging from the original Toy Story on through The Incredibles, WALL-E, Moana, and Inside Out. Ed has a background in computer science, and as someone who pioneered many of the computer graphics and digital animation techniques that we now take for granted, he has a unique perspective on the intersection of technology and creativity. We chat with Ed about his transition from creating things himself to leading creative teams, the elements of a sustainable creative culture, and how to give people feedback so they'll actually listen to you. Ed has also collaborated with Steve Jobs longer than probably anyone else who knew him for over 30 years. And we hear some stories about Jobs that haven't been told anywhere else before. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. And now, back to the show. Ed Catmull, welcome to Design Better Podcast. It's my pleasure to be talking with you. Oh, gosh, the pleasure is ours. We're so excited to talk to you. We were saying before we hit the record button that Eli and I were big fans of your book, Creativity, Inc., when the first edition came out back in 2014, and you've released a new edition that is expanded could you tell us what prompted this new edition that's just come out? Well, there were two basic things. One of them was when I was writing the book, at some point I had to finish, like any project. <laughs> so the book ends at notes day, and I knew that was not the end of the story, but I kept keeping notes and thinking about things as well as rethinking things. The part of it was to tell the consequences of that particular day which rolled out over several years. It rolled out and had a bigger impact than I would have guessed at the time. And the second one was, I found that there were two things. One is some people were misinterpreting what I was saying. If I had laid out the way to become creative, which wasn't my intention. And for me, it's not the right way to think about it. And the other one was, I just had to to rethink some things. Some of the things I expressed there, I thought, well, you know, that doesn't capture the underlying problem or the right way to think about them. So some of it was to go back and recast it. A lot of things that I've learned because like everything else, you, you keep learning something new all the time. Yeah, one of the things you said in the audiobook, I listened to the audiobook and I really enjoyed that, was that people got the impression from the book that here's the formula that Pixar developed over you know, a period of time, and this is how you keep hitting home runs. And you didn't like that characterization. It is right, because the one thing I do know is that if you're fairly successful at what you're doing, then over time, the people who are doing it are also changing and growing and learning. And, and also, they've got families that are growing. So the normal changes that happen to individuals themselves, the dynamics of a group change over time. 
But also in the world of technology, there's an underlying fairly rapid and exponential change which is going on, which changes everything all the time. And also when you bring in people from the outside to work, well, their training and their experiences is new. So they're changing. And the expectations of the customers, the people who are watching what you're doing is changing. There is nothing at all stable in this picture. The notion that somehow there is this sweet spot that you land on just isn't correct. This is a continual, dynamic, changing situation as it is in most things in the world, really. But the issue then is how do we maintain creativity throughout all these changes? Because it's hard. And so if we think we're trying to get to like the sweet spot and hang on to it, no, actually we're trying to get to the point where we're thinking about things, where we're adapting to the change. It almost sounds esoteric to say it that way, but it's the real world that we're dealing with. There's this continual change that goes on. And I've been in this field for 50 years, and there just continue to be these big surprises and massive changes. That's one issue. And the other one was that in terms of how people think about failure and success is not quite the right thing to think about. That is, people are sort of focusing on how to become creative, as how do I become more creative? But for me, the issue isn't that one. I think people basically have got much greater potential to be creative than they think. The real problem is that companies, corporations, and organizations often put things in place which are actually getting in the way of creativity. And that's the deeper question is why is it that people or companies that want to be creative are putting in expectations and rules and ways of doing things which actually block people? They don't know they're doing it. They don't think they're doing it, but it's happening. I was watching uh, last night this movie, Blackberry, about the uh, Blackberry you know, handheld precursor to the iPhone with the keyboard. And there was a lot of scenes where, you know, the team was just goofing off, they were playing video games, they were doing things that sort of like seemed maybe unproductive. And then new management came in and kind of shut all that down. I'm wondering if those are some of the things you're talking about that are impediments to creative culture as a company grows and scales. I think it happens with a lot of companies. The thing about the playing around and the goofing off, I think a lot of people know that that's actually a healthy thing to do, but it isn't something you can organize top down. You need to figure out how to be organic so it comes from the people themselves. But part of that problem that you're referring to is that there's a basic business that any company has got to do. And so sometimes they bring in people and they're so focused on that, they're actually not realizing that these rule changes they're making are actually signals to people. So, okay, what are the signals that you give? So are the signals are that it's okay to do a number of things. The truth is that everybody just played ping pong all the time. You wouldn't get anything done. But if some people are actually fooling around and it's okay, or they're like, they're pushing the boundaries and it's okay, then you're giving a signal to everybody. The truth is people are typically in a group or in an organization because they want to do something. So you actually can count on that. I know people want to come because they want to make a difference in the world. And they don't want to come there to play. But they do play, and at times they do thoroughly enjoy the play, but they know that's not why they're there. But if people come in and shut it down, you've just said, oh, 
there are these really strict boundaries around which you can work. And then you've got everybody thinking, okay, what is allowable? What isn't allowable? So instead of enabling creativity, you're blocking it. So while the new leadership may come and think, well, okay, this is the right thing to do because of the focus of the company, they've actually give signals to people that we at the top know what the best thing is. And so you need to adhere to these particular rules. Completely counterproductive and doesn't work. And it's actually, it's disastrous. And this story has happened over and over again. And I've seen so many companies where it's happened where the leadership actually loses track of really what's going on. And they just don't know, they're not paying attention, or they're oblivious to the signals that they're giving. And I think what's unique about your approach to running a company and, and management is that you, at your heart, you're a creative person, you're a creative thinker, you, you understand the process and what people need. So there's like a, a sense of empathy that you bring to the work. But this change that you're talking about, there's this dynamic of as a manager or a leader in a company, you don't want to come in and constrain things. But then there are circumstances that force a change, significant change, like an acquisition by Disney, which was a, a major change that Pixar went through. Could you talk to us about how you navigated that? I know that you felt like in hindsight, there were some missteps about if you could go back and play it differently, you'd probably navigate that differently. But people, they are resistant to change. How do you guide them through that when it's the right time? In the case of Disney acquiring Pixar, because I'm very close to the people there, I knew that their worry was that there would be a lot of rules and bureaucracy coming over the hill. <laughs> you know, we're an hour flight away that might be well-intentioned. That is, nobody was actually questioning other people's intentions, but they were aware that companies often come in and they put things in place which actually screw things up. That's what they were afraid of. And they knew we'd reached the point where we had to do something. So it was one of those odd things where they knew things were going on. And also at Pixar, I have to say is, in all the time I was there, we never had a leap to the outside. And the reason was, we always told people what was going on and about all the problems. We never kept anything secret. And what we found was that by including people, that they felt some ownership. So they saw this coming. There was rumors about it. Nobody talked with press because people were trying to get in the sideways to figure out what's going on. But I knew there was going to be a fear about what was going to happen afterwards. Steve knew it too. So Steve was... I basically worked hard and I would say successfully to put in mechanisms to protect the culture. And even though the mechanisms are put in place to protect the culture, that doesn't mean they're going to hold up. So they were afraid. And I did get in front of the company and I said, well, don't worry, you know, things aren't going to change, which was actually not the correct thing to say, because as I said, things are always changing. And what I should have said was that, the way our culture grows and evolves will continue to grow under our control because that was a setup that was in place. And once I, I misspoke, I said it incorrectly, it took a long time to correct the perception. But in fact, the things we put in place did work. And uh, the original deal that was put in place had these essentially protective mechanisms that were supposed to last for five years. 
And by the time I retired, 13 years later, they were still in place because they were working. And so they did reach the comfort level. Now, what that really meant was we still had and continue to have and have always had serious problems, but they were ours to solve. Having people included in how we solve the problems was a critical thing. And that's what we had to keep them comfortable with as we move forward. These measures that Steve Jobs put in place, could you talk a little bit about what exactly they were and how you know maybe they shifted after he departed? In truth, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Part of it was that I was made the president of both studios, Disney. And Disney at that point was had been on a downhill trajectory for a long time and weren't successful, and they knew it. So it turns out Disney Animation really wanted us to be there because they wanted to be successful too. But in terms of what those things were, it's like it was a list of about 50 things, as I recall. Some of them were not important, but they were on the list because we didn't know. Like we had a an annual paper airplane contest. <laughs> well, the truth is we never had another one because it kind of reached its limit <laughs> of what it did. So there were a few things that fell into that category, but other things were that we were on our own HR system and our own finance system. And everywhere else in Disney, they were on one particular system and we were on a different one. And the people in our finance department had a very good relationship with Disney finance to make sure they got the data that they wanted. And that's all they cared about. They just wanted the up-to-date information. So that ended up being a smooth one. HR has policies and we had a different set of policies, but we also had our own uh, vacation schedule, but also very importantly, our long-term conversation in terms of bonuses for films was different than what they had. So some of those things it was necessary to hang on to. There's a long list of things which actually add up to making a fairly significant difference to say that we were, have always been different but not in the, in the sense that like we felt like we should be exceptional. It's just that I feel like groups should feel like they own their successes or their failures. As they, they don't look at anybody else. We have to own our own problems. I'd say the biggest initial struggle I had was that time, actually the entire time I was there, I had a dual report to both Bob Iger and to the chairman of the studio. But there have been different chairmen of the studio while I was there. So when I retired, for instance, uh, it was Alan Horner's is great gentleman. He's now retired. Retired just a little after I, I did. But he'd been over at Warner Brothers. And so I had a dual report to him. But the first chairman, when I was there, felt like we really needed to merge the studios. And that was one where I felt very strongly that it was important that we not merge them. And so there was some conflict over that. And frankly, you know, Bob Iger supported me in this decision. So I knew that I had his support as we're, you know, essentially developing both studios. But also, I came up with a rule which I announced at both companies, because I thought this is very important. And that is that they were free to talk to each other, to share ideas, but they didn't have to. So in this case, they both had different pipelines, different technology. They had their own version of a brain trust, which you know, we went through a process of developing. The natural thing you'd say anytime you had two small companies that are in the same business, which we were in both thing animated films, 
is you would say, why would we have two finance departments, two marketing departments, two research departments, and different pipelines? That makes no sense. But my view was actually in a time when things are changing rapidly, you're better off having smaller groups that can respond quickly rather than having a bigger group, which is going to be slower. All right. So that's one, just an observation over the years about how change takes place. But the other one was, it's really important for a group to feel like they own what they did. So when Disney came out with their first successful film, they knew that they had made the film and they hadn't been rescued by the production people. And they were in trouble. They asked for help. And I said, no, because then it would, it could always be thought that Pixar rescued them. Well, that isn't good for them. So over time, they just learned that they're responsible for it. But because they could share, and we made sure there was no existential threat between the two, because they didn't have to do what the other did. What it did was it freed them up to listen. So they actually communicated a lot with each other. They just pick up the phone. They talk to her counterpart. They'd share things. They self-organized to have their own conference every year and then included ILM and the Marvel people as they came into the company. But it wasn't something I organized. They did it. And then they would go and they would share their ideas. And if they liked them, they might use them. If they didn't, they wouldn't. And it's all about how do you have people feel like they own what they're doing? The thing about creativity is you are trying to get something new and original, but it is coming from within that group. They have to feel like they're really doing it and then they make a difference in it. They're not a cog in a big wheel. They actually have some meaning in what they're doing and they know it. Ed, could you talk about the elements of sustainable creative culture? Because that was a big focus of yours. You know, Pixar started out with a strong creative culture, but sustaining that through time is a challenge. What were those elements that you thought of over the years? The first thing to know is that prior to their being Pixar, is that I had come out of, well, actually, I went to the University of Utah and was remarkably lucky because my first teacher was Alan Kay, who later got the Turing Award. And the basic principle was, is things are changing really fast and you got to think that way. So that was like a basic thing. And then the second one was Ivan Sutherland. And Ivan said, okay, you've got this big vision, but we got to solve the problems one at a time. So for me, it was like, okay, my job was to make the next step. But what I thought about the future was changing every time I took this step. So it's almost like now is interacting with the future. Because what I do now is going to affect how I think about things off in the future. And then once I readjust my vision, then I might change the next step that's there. So that was like this intellectual underpinning going forward. And the other was that environment was so great, it profoundly changed my life. Because I thought, I want this wherever I go. I loved that experience. And so I tried to do that and I made some mistakes along the way. My view of myself also changed over time because I started off really early on as a kid thinking I wanted to be an artist and then I wanted to be a scientist and then I wanted to solve problems in computer science. And then I got to New York Tech and, you know, I make some mistakes because I only thought of myself as a researcher, 
But I found as I dealt with other creative people that these were really interesting problems, that the way they interacted with each other and the way they supported each other was tricky and it was interesting. So I didn't lose the love of anything along the way, but I just found more things that were interesting. And the development of the culture was something that was interesting, but also it's like it was continually changing. And I get to Lucasfilm and at Lucasfilm, I got to visit a lot of companies, you know, the supercomputer companies of the time, Crate and CDC, and a lot of your listeners won't even remember them. But I, I got this terrific view because I would have meetings with executives during the day because they wanted to sell the Lucasfilm because it's a sexy company because of Star Wars. But at night, I'd have dinner with the engineers. So now I was getting two different views of each company that I visited. Well, that's interesting. Why is that happening? <laughs> so just over time, it was like getting these different perspectives and seeing how it works. So knowing this and also working with Steve as he went through his own transition in his life, then I was just aware that, okay, if we're successful with this film, with Toy Story, then it doesn't mean we can do it again because we can't repeat ourselves. Right? You, just, you can't make the same film over and over again. I mean, try which is what a lot of sequels are. If you just keep repeating yourself, you're losing your creative energy. And sometimes you do something to do, and it's, just, and it's a do-over every time. Well, it's, you know that may not work either. So the question after the success of Toy Story was not, okay, how do we do that again? The more interesting one was, okay, how do we have a culture that's going to keep on growing and changing and doing something different? How's that going to work? And I was aware of the risks and the problems as we built Toy Story. And then as we start into the second two films, one of them was Toy Story 2, a sequel. And the other one was A Bug's Life, an original film. But when we started Toy Story, there had never been a successful sequel to an animated film, a financially successful. So initially, it was going to be direct-to-video. But what I found was inside the company that the employees working on that film were pissed. They didn't want to make a B-level film. They wanted to make a high-quality film. If they're going to do a sequel, they want it to be a great film. So I just look at that and say, that's great. <laughs> that's an energy. The fact that people want to do something great is an incredible energy that should be recognized for what it is. And so we rather quickly changed the course, and Disney agreed with it, to make this become a theatrical distribution. And so now we're doing that film. And again, we have problems and mistakes. And some of the assumptions we had made from the first one were actually wrong about how you build a team together. So, okay, we're now in this learning mode. The assumptions we had thought were correct from the first film turn out a lot of them not to be correct. Some were and some weren't. And what I realized going through this and something I actually picked out when I was at New York Tech because I was trying to build a culture there was that when I left, about half of my decisions were right. They worked out really well. And about half of them were a complete crock. So then as I went to Lucasfilm, I thought, you know, that's kind of the, what keeps happening over and over again, that when I try to do something new, about half the time it does work, and half the time the new ideas don't work at all. I'll bet that's true for the rest of my life. And it has been. <laughs> it's not that I have a way of actually counting what those are. 
for me, the valuable lesson I learned during that period was that I was wrong more than I thought I was going to be. And how do you think about creating a culture that's willing to take risks, experiment? Yesterday, we were talking with Paolo Antonelli from MoMA, and we're talking about this in education, where in some programs, I'd include some programs where I teach, there's not as much room for experimentation. It's a little too rigid sometimes. How do you set up the culture to encourage that experimentation and create new things and be open to the kinds of failures and learnings that you're talking about just now? I mean, the educational example is an important one. It's interesting because in the case of CalArts, when they actually put together their animation program, that first group that came through the program produced more influential people in animation than any other class. John Lasseter was in that class and Brad Bird was in the class and actually a pretty remarkable group. So I thought, well, what was different? And likewise, why did Utah, where I went to school, produce so many influential people? Because, you know, Jim Clark, who founded Netscape and Silicon Graphics, and uh, John Warnock, who founded Adobe, we were all classmates together. So if, if I take the CalArts program as an example, I knew that while they had some teachers there who were like retired from Disney, they'd been there during the heyday when Walt was there, that they didn't actually have a real program in place. And so the students had to figure it out on their own. So they were teaching themselves and the expectation was for them to figure it out. Then over time, the school finally figured out what a curriculum was, but the statistics changed. So there was something about having to figure out something which was very educational. I love that aspect of, well, you got to figure it out, but also means that your goal is not to come up with the curriculum or the process that's always going to work. That's to say, okay, we have to have some element in there where we're doing things where we don't know. So what we do with films is we do a blend because the reality is that there sometimes, if you do a sequel, it turns out they're just as hard to make. And they're just as hard to make because we want them to be just as hard to make. Because if they're easy to make, we're not doing something that's very original. So they're no easier to do, but they're easier to market. So if the public really liked the first one and we have something where we think we can take the story, then we will make a sequel. And so it's not a high-risk business proposition to do that. If roughly like a third of that way because a lot of films, no matter how great they are, you really can't think of what a sequel might be. Like The Ratatouille, which is this phenomenal film, what's the sequel to it? Well, nobody could think of one, but we wouldn't try to force it either. So that's about a third of the films. And then about a third of the films are just great ideas that the person comes up with that we have the confidence in. And so we said, go ahead and do it. So you know, Inside Out was an example of that, where Pete Doctor said, I have this idea I'm really passionate about, and it takes place inside the mind of a little girl. It's one of those things like, wow, that's really a good idea. <laughs> so you just go ahead and do that. And then about a third of the films, they're higher risk. And the phrase that I use is they would fail the elevator test. And the basic concept of the elevator test, which is applied in a lot of industries, is You've got a new idea. So you're being creative. You've got something new. So 
You want to present it to somebody and get their attention because you want them to fund it or to support it. How do you actually condense the idea into a clear pitch that can be given in a short period of time to convince people that it's worth supporting? So that's the elevator pitch. But my own belief is that about a third of our stuff need to fail the elevator test. That if we can do something and describe it so quickly that often all it means is it's derivative because that's easier to explain something that's derivative. (laughs) Now, it doesn't mean they're all derivative, but the goal shouldn't be to have a really clear pitch right up front because sometimes you want to take on something that's hard. So ratatouille, okay, a rat that's going to cook. Well, honestly, you know, if you gave a 15-minute pitch about that, it doesn't sound like a very good idea. (laughs) If you had an hour to do it, it doesn't sound like a good idea. If you had a week to explain it, it doesn't sound like a good idea. If you had three months to explain it, it doesn't sound like a good idea. So it's one of those things where it's only by solving the problem and giving yourself a really hard challenge that in order to make it worthy, that you need to come up with something original that you would not have thought of when you first conceived of the idea. Would Finding Nemo have fallen to that category too? I imagine that'd be a hard one to pitch. Well, no, actually Finding Nemo was one where given the fact that it was Andrew Stanton that pitched it, then actually his first pitch was good. Now, sometimes there are pitches where you listen to that first pitch and they're very good. Now, when you actually get to the movie, it turns out it's very different than that, that original pitch. So in the case of Andrew, because Andrew is very good at pitching an idea, but the thing about pitching an idea is that you are looking at your audience and because they're in the room with you, and so you're adjusting your pacing, and if you're entertaining in the way you present things, which he is, then it actually is one of those things like, well, of course we should do that. Now, the reason we have to go through these other steps is when you're actually making a film, you're not in the audience across the world (laughs) pitching your idea. You actually have to have something that stands on its own. So some of the concepts that were there to begin with actually didn't work. We thought they were going to work because it sounded very sophisticated and really cool and different. And it turns out that then making it happen took it down different directions. And the same thing happened with Wally. This creative process is kind of all over the map. Now, there is something that we do that we ask directors to do. Not all of them do it because, you know, they don't like it. Most of them do it. And this has to do with the way they develop their idea. So one of the things we realized early on, this is when you're making Toy Story 2, was that we did not want to have the model that the other studios had. And the basic model for most studios was they're looking for a really great script. They know they go through various iterations to make it, but that's their starting point is to get that. We decided not to do that, that our story ideas actually need to come from the director or the leadership team themselves. So we hire excellent writers. We read their scripts to find out whether or not we like their style of writing, but we never make somebody else's script. So what we do is we pick the people because we think they've got the ability to do something original and they've got the passion to make it happen. We then ask them to come up with three pitches or three ideas, excuse me, and we give them a year to do it. Typically they'll get a writer, they'll get one or two art people to help convey the idea. 
and they'll work on these three different ideas over the course of a year. Now, the reason for three ideas is the experience that we've all had. It's like you're working on a project, you're in school or whatever, and you start to bang your head against the wall. You just get stuck. And if you get stuck for a long time, it can be very discouraging and, and might even block you. So instead, we said, you know, when you get stuck, switch to your other idea. The whole idea was to keep people from getting stuck. So they would then go round and round with the three ideas. And at the end of the year, they would pitch their three ideas to the creative leadership of the company. Okay, so now the creative leadership now by this time has been through this process and they know what it's like, but the same performance actually happens every time. Rather <laughs> odd to me, but <laughs> it does happen. Well, excuse me, it's not odd. I recognize vulnerability is that when you're pitching something to people, you're putting yourself on the line here. And we have to respect the emotion that people have and their own vulnerability when they present something else. And they're not presenting it to people who are very good at what they do. So it makes them a little hesitant, even though they're very good friends. It's scary. It's got to mm-hmm. be scary. <laughs> it is. So they start off by saying that they love all three of their ideas equally. They don't. <laughs> but that's what they say. And so what we do is we've got story rooms. And story rooms are like rectangular rooms with a table in the middle. And there are two long walls that can have storyboards on them with the door at one end. And so they'll typically have story meetings in there. But for this case, it's one wall they'll have the storyboards to pitch an idea with drawings and stuff on it. And they'll maybe 20, 30 minutes to pitch that idea, discuss it a little bit. Then they'll move to the other wall to discuss the other idea. And then since there's only two long walls, we'll actually go to the story room next door for the third wall. And then they'll pitch the idea. And then at the end, they'll leave while the rest of the creative leadership will discuss the ideas, which one should be made into a movie. Now, in truth, what's happening is they're not really thinking about which is the best movie. What they're trying to discuss is which one do they really want to make? And basically, I think we always get that right. But my favorite example was with Coco. So Lee Unkrich wanted to make Coco. So he came and he gave us three pitches. One of them was based upon an idea that he'd actually worked on before. Another one was a musical. Pixar never made a musical, but he wanted to do a musical. And so those are the the first two pitches. And then we go to the third pitch where we all go into the other room. So we open the door, the ceiling, the table, the two walls and the end wall are filled with Mexican artwork. So without a word being said, we all know which movie we're going to make. (laughs) And the truth was, the movie changed dramatically in the making of it, and his intention originally was to make it be a musical. That's how radically things change. But the starting point was, that's where his passion was. And we hired this great team from New York to do the song and the, the lyrics and the music for it. And the first thing they came up with was, remember me. And the thing about people at Pixar is they don't really have musicals in their DNA. Unlike Disney, where they do. It's a difference, right? But he wanted to be the first one to do it. But in the end, it was like, oh, actually, I really like thematically building around this one song because it emotionally works. And he could see his train through it. The final movie bore almost no resemblance to the original pitch. Didn't matter. 
What mattered was that passion that was going to move it towards something that was really original. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DesignBetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DesignBetter. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. And now, back to the show. I find this process really fascinating, and this is well-documented in the book, The Brain Trust, and who's in there. It's kind of a rotating cast of folks who would be in The Brain Trust. One of the challenges with these sorts of sessions, presumably, is how you give people feedback, because people are coming into these pitches. You know, If I'm the one pitching a film, there's a lot of effort that went into that pitch, which makes it interesting that they're bringing in these three different ideas, but they're highly invested. And in a creative process, it can be hard to receive critical feedback. When you thought you had clarity and you know, vision and you're conveying that in a way that you feel is compelling, and then you hear from these people in the room, people you admire who are really great at what they do, there's some holes here. You know, there's some problems. Maybe this is not a thing worth pushing forward. What did you learn about giving people feedback so they'll receive it? It took us some time to figure out how to make the brain trust work. The brain trust, in the end, was different than what we started off with. What we started off with was we had 
five people who worked remarkably well together to solve the problems, but they're only working on one movie. And then they worked on the next movie. <laughs> but we also knew at some time that this didn't scale well as we grew as a company. We also recognized that we were getting very valuable feedback from Disney at the time, because it was a Tom Schumacher, who was the chairman of Disney Animation. But we knew at some point he was going to go back to New York. He's now over the Broadway musicals for Disney. And that that kind of outside feedback wasn't going to work in the future. We did understand that you do need somebody on the outside who's going to give you this feedback, but you want an outside powerful force to also have a vested interest in your success. And if you know that their feedback is given because they want you to succeed, that makes it easier to take. So our first thought was, oh, we'll form this trust. And Xander Stanton, who started to call it the brain trust, to give that feedback to each other as we had our different projects. Now, the truth was, it didn't end up working that well, partly because that group knew it so well that they also lost their own objectivity about it. Then the question was, okay, what is an outside force? What we found is you do need something external at times to do a course correction. And interestingly enough, it's uh, it's interesting how it happened, but Steve Jobs became the external force, but not in ways that people might expect. Because I'd asked Steve right at the beginning not to come to a brain trust meeting, and he never did. And he understood why. Uh, Because fairly early on, we realized that the brain trust meeting itself was a place where people came in feeling vulnerable. And there were different kinds of dynamics in a room. Some people might want to be overly careful because they don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. That happens. People might want to show off or show how clever they were. That can happen. These are these human dynamics that are going on inside of a group. So the question is, how do you actually make this group work well? So over time, we realized that the brain trust wasn't there to serve the role of the external feedback. They were there as colleagues to help each other. And so what that meant was that Within that room, nobody had authority to make decisions over the director or the director's creative team. That is, the call was theirs. This is a fairly rigorous thing. It's like, this isn't what this meeting is for. It's about to give help and feedback. But we didn't even make tough decisions. Like, we really had to make a tough decisions. We never made it within two or three weeks after any of these meetings or the week before. Because we didn't want it overloaded with you know, the fear about what might happen. And we also essentially had some kind of rules in place about how it should work and because we were trying to remove the power from the room. So the basic principle was, this room is colleagues speaking to colleagues. And that was part of this, keep the power out of the room. As you know, in any group, there are people who've got powerful personalities or they actually have power. <laughs> they could make a decision to shut something down or do something. So for the couple of people who were like that, They understood the rule and adhered to the rule that they needed to shut the hell up for the first 15 minutes. You start off by saying something really nice because people have been working their butts off to get this screening ready. You do need to acknowledge that, but once you've acknowledged it and you're not not talking about the content, you're talking about appreciating their work, then the people with the power just shut up and listen. And what it means is that later they enter a discussion. If a powerful person expresses a view at the beginning, they've just set the tone for the meeting. And 
You don't want to do that. You want to have the discussion of the experienced colleagues. I mean, these are really good people who are working on this. Come in and start the discussion. And then at some point you enter and the relationship is different when you do that. And so what we found is that this in general works quite well. Once in a while, it does go off the rails, in which case we have to do something to make some adjustments or fix things because that does happen. And every once in a while, it's like magical because you just feel like the ego has left the room. And what that means is people aren't attached to their ideas. If I say something and it's not accepted in the room, I don't feel judged or I don't feel deflated because my idea wasn't accepted. That's what happens to people, right? Like I'm going to do something new. People look at it and you can tell by their body language that they don't like it. So you get deflated by it. So not being attached to it means if I say something, which could be positive or negative, and the room doesn't agree, I don't have my ego attached to it. I have let it go. And when the room gets in that state, then it's actually pretty remarkable. And all of a sudden you have this incredible changes in growth that takes place. So essentially we've tried to pay attention to the process and how it changes, the effects of different people. And it's not that every room meeting is this way. It's like this particular kind of meeting trying to solve a problem, giving great feedback and making it safe for people to listen. So that's the whole idea. The other kinds of heavy duty meetings that, ha- that sometimes happen, they just don't happen in those meetings. I wonder, Ed, so I, I know a few people, including my friend and colleague, Dave Kelly, the D school who worked pretty closely with Steve Jobs on a number of projects. And he and, and the other folks I know have their own way of dealing with somebody who had a very complicated personality. He was obviously very blunt at times. I'm curious, you know, what you learned working with him, how you dealt with that type of personality. I'm sure you encountered it in other places along your career too. Well, when I first knew Steve, it was when he had just been removed from Apple for the kind of behavior that's you know part of the mythology around him. And I saw that Steve and he bought Pixar. And so we started up and that is kind of the way he was like at the time. And I found like a change over time. But for me, the story of Steve was more like the hero's journey. He actually was making mistakes early on. And when he formed Next, which he did shortly after leaving Apple, he made a couple of brilliant software decisions, some of which people don't fully appreciate because they know Apple ultimately bought Next in order to get the software. But the software that he had actually was Unix, which came out of Berkeley. (laughs) And the brilliant thing was to get that really high-functioning software system and then make a better interface to it, which is what they called Next Step. And that was the thing that actually led to them being acquired by Apple later. And that software, that Berkeley Unix, you know, it's <laughs> it's in the watch and it's in the phone. And we're broadcasting from it right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But they also made some, I'd say, questionable hardware decisions at the time that I think were mistakes. You know, Steve has strong opinions about design, and I think some of those things weren't helpful for them as a small company. And he also made, I think, a couple of business decisions, which were actually not right at all. But some of them were like, on the surface, they looked like they were big wins. In this case, it was a $100 million investment from IBM to get access to Next Step. But they didn't have the rights to second versions or second versions that might come out. And it's like, okay, not giving them access to subsequent versions 
was not a good business decision. And the fact that IBM even let this happen was also a bad decision on their part. Like both parties kind of screwed that one up and didn't do either one of them any good. You know, it's that kind of stuff. But the interesting thing about Steve was like, he's so smart that he was not only learning from these things, he was also applying the learnings and his way of thinking to himself. And so I noticed that he was changing over time as he was dealing with us. I would also say that the first version of, of Pixar uh, didn't succeed as we failed. We did a restart. So he essentially had the two companies he had started, which were not doing well. Like Next wasn't doing great. Pixar wasn't doing great. So you saw this change happen. And then around 1991, sort of like this bigger thing took place in its life fairly quickly, but fairly dramatic. One of them was that in 1991 is when he signed the deal with Disney to make a feature film. And 91 is also when he got married to Lorene and his son was born. So this time you saw this fairly rapid change. And in 1995, Pixar went public, which was a huge success. So it's like the thing that could actually let him put behind the original thing at Apple because Pixar was now this, you know, like the second largest uh, IPO in 1995 after Netscape. So huge success. And in the process, I just watching Steve became empathetic. So there was something about having a son Reed and his wife was pretty remarkable and uh, learning from the relations that he had and then becoming successful such that when he went through this, the people who were with him stayed with him for the rest of his life, right? Because now it was different. So you had this passionate, strong person, but he was, he treated people in a very different way. Now, the unfortunate thing is because they stayed with him for the rest of his life, when people started to write about him, that when they would interview anybody, including me, like if I was interviewed about Steve, I wasn't going to psychoanalyze him. I wasn't going to say to the, the reporter the same things I just told you because I didn't know what they were going to write. <laughs> so the result was that incredible change is not part of the public narrative about Steve. And what people don't realize is that person they read about when he was younger is not the person who made the apple that Going to fundamentally change the world. It was that change, Steve, that did. So, in the case of that, Steve, first of all, I'd say that I think I worked for Steve longer than anybody else, and I never had an argument with him. I disagreed with him often, but I just figured out how to disagree with him, and so I had my own style, and that style was that. I would, you know, say something which he wouldn't agree with, but because he could think faster than I could, and I had no illusions that I could think as fast as he could, because I can't. But also, I understood, I've always understood this, that if somebody has a powerful personality, or if they're in a role of great power, that doesn't mean to me that they're right. I may find it difficult to engage with it, but I never get a deluded to think that that means they're right. So if I disagree with Steve, I say, well, I'll get back to you later on it. So I might take a week to think about my next sentence. And then I get back on the phone and bring it up and I give my next thing and he'd shoot it down. Okay, I'll get back to you on that. So we would have these conversations that would go on for weeks. 
and a few times months. And essentially, there was one of three outcomes which were equally likely. One of them was that I would actually say, oh, I get what you're saying. You're right. So that's the end of the discussion because I just saw it. And a third of the time, he would say, oh, I get it. So it's the end of the discussion because he'd say I was right. And the other third of the time was not determined, but I just did it the way I wanted. And he didn't care because we had discussed it. So that was the style that we had of working together. But I think the other thing that people miss about Steve was that he really tried to make sure they had truth around him. So I'll give you an example, which is one that most people don't know about, was that Pixar was a public company for 10 years, from you know, 95 to 2006 when we were sold. So during that time, there were two members of the board of directors of Pixar who were fired from the board. And the reason they were fired was that Steve said they never disagreed with him. And he said, it isn't of any value if they're just people around me who agree with me all the time. It's like, okay, that's, that actually is the way Steve is. And so if you look at what took place at Apple, first of all, Steve did something which a lot of executives can't do, is he just said, okay, there's a limit to where we're going to be able to get with a workstation. So we need to do something which is going to be a different business model. So it's unusual for them to say, we're going to change our business model. But now having said that, what would the new one be? Steve thought it should be the iPad, but the people around him thought that was a mistake. It needed to be the phone. All right. So in this case, they convinced him. So now they go through this thing of where they, they actually make the phone and then they disagree with him because they think that the infrastructure for the uh, apps should be open and he thought it should be closed. And he prevailed in the argument. And within three or four months, he realized- he changed his mind. He, he changed <laughs> yeah. his mind. Because Steve, at an intuitive level, knew that his job wasn't to win an argument. His job was to find out what the truth was. And so you may have a passion, but sometimes you find that passion isn't working. So at that point, you change. And one of the things he loved about the directors was that's what their job is. Is the director comes with a passion, just as Andrew did, just as Lee Unkrich did, like this real passion about it. But in fact, if it doesn't work, then they change. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get to the truth. You're not trying to be right when you first think of something. You're trying to end up in a good place. And that's a hard thing for some people to get. It's fascinating, you know, these stories of, of watching a figure like Steve Jobs kind of evolve through time and what a unique experience to kind of watch that. But you also worked with George Lucas and presumably you learned a few things about creativity and culture from working at LucasArts as well. Oh, yes. So George, you know, he had this vision, which other people weren't buying into. And for him, it was to do Star Wars and he had this longer thing and he decided to start with sort of like in the middle of the story, which is a, the right decision to make. Because it wasn't fully bought into, I mean, it was funded by Fox, but he was given the rights to the consumer products, which that turned out to have been essentially the financial thing, which really let him move to a whole different level. And he also had a 
team that had come together to make the effects. In fact, uh, this is what, I guess a year or two ago, they, were, they had a great documentary about the building of ILM, you know, because these people were all doing things for the first time too. Like they were figuring it out as they went. It was actually a pretty remarkable story. But in this case, as he's now working on his second film, George is passionate about the film industry, but he really believed that the underlying technology was going to change and the film industry was inherently too conservative. And they weren't recognizing how much things were going to change. So the reason he funded it and the reason he hired me was to come in and you know, start the computer division at Lucasfilm was to bring technology into the industry. But George was doing it for altruistic reasons. His intention was to do something good for the industry. And so the first projects had to do with visual and effects and compositing and so forth. And that aligned with the direct experience that I had, as well as the people that joined us quickly, some of which I brought with me from New York Tech. And then one of them had to do with audio, digital audio. And the third one was with uh, video editing. And then later, a games group was started. So I had four different groups that we were building out at the time. Each one were like different lessons. It was really pretty amazing. It's like you, you simultaneously got four different things where you're learning something. So the, the question is, do the internal customers for what we're doing want it? In the case of the digital audio, this Ben Burt was the guy that was over audio and doing the effects for the Star Wars film or leading that group. He loves everything, this new technology. He completely embraced this group and wanted to be part of it. In the case of the video editing, the video editing people did not want it. They had learned and they'd become masters of how you keep track of clips of film and how you put them together. So now you come up with something new, which is you're putting stuff on tape, or in our case, we got optical discs, and so we're writing onto optical discs because we want to have real fast access to play them back for the editing purposes. And, and you were at the beginning, so it's a learning process. And, you know, essentially that group was rejecting it. So they didn't actually want it. So, so okay, that's one example. Then there was a case of ILM. So ILM is this group that had just come together building new technology, but what we're doing is all digital. What would they want? And the answer was that what they cared about was what they got on the screen at the end. Our resolution as we started was too low, so it wasn't relevant to them. So they weren't either asking for it, nor were they opposed. They were just saying, if it's good enough, we'll use it. What that did to us was it said, oh, we have to be good enough to meet their standards. So that was really motivating to try to make something that was good enough that they felt good about it. And when it was good enough, they used it. And it became essentially part of the groundwork for changing the entire film industry. But George's idea was, to make this available to everybody. So when I was in New York Tech, we published everything we did. I got to Lucasfilm and George was fine with us publishing everything we did. Now the surprising thing to people was that when Steve bought Pixar from Lucasfilm, this is because of changing financial circumstance at uh, 
Lucasfilm. So now we spun out. Steve is the new owner. But Steve had no problem with us publishing everything. Now, Steve is known to be very secretive. But Steve is smart. So he was secretive for a reason for what he was doing. But he knew that we had a different motivation. We published everything because the most important thing for us to get was to get the best talent. So if we participated completely in the community around graphics and computer graphics, then we would attract the best talent. And we did. Plus, we established really strong relationships across academia. And so some of my longest term friends are in academia because we've completely participated in this broader community. And Steve understood that. So the notion of publishing everything was perfectly fine with him. This one's a little bit looking towards the future. And I'm curious to get your take on you know, all the new technology that's arriving around artificial intelligence and machine learning. And you can kind of imagine a, a point in time, we're not there yet, but where some amount of the technological constraints that are currently you know, in place around Pixar films, where there's a lot of really kind of handcrafted elements, some amount of those technological constraints go away to a certain degree. And you could produce like really high fidelity pre-visualizations relatively quickly. You have these access to the tools that, you know, just make that process a lot faster, potentially. What do you think happens to the creative process once those things become easier, essentially? Having gone through this, you know, over the last 50 years, the one thing I, I do know is that the technological change is coming. So whether you like it or whether you don't like it or whether or not you fear it, you actually aren't going to stop. The change is going to take place. So the best thing to do is to say, oh, let's understand it and embrace it and let's adapt what we're doing. The actual storytelling process has to do with in like the human emotions. As I, as I mentioned, we're looking for for people who've got this personal drive, which I value a great deal. So how do you then take that and have people who know how to come in and use it as things change? So, you know, they change in different ways. They change in terms of distribution. There are the surprises like, you know, COVID altered certain things for people. So now you're sort of, you got a shock to the system. We've always had these shocks to the system. What do we do about it? So I just look at it and say, okay, it's coming. But the one thing I also know is that it's kind of unpredictable. Like, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I think some things are inevitable. Like, I do think, as an example, that self-driving cars are inevitable. Were they going to happen in 10 years, as people were initially suggesting? No. <laughs> if one had asked the right questions, <laughs> then they would not have said that. Augmented or virtual reality, I think, is inevitable because of the cost of the things and so forth. But how long will it take? I don't know. And there's some things because of technological change which become unstable. So things like in the blockchain and the, the EFTs or whatever else, stuff like that. I looked at those as well. They're kind of fundamentally unstable. It's not like I know what's going to happen. But there's a difference between saying something is extremely likely to happen versus it's highly unstable, so I, I really can't predict it. But when it comes to when things are going to happen, in general, I don't know what the timing is because there are usually some surprises that come along that you don't see coming. I mean, honestly, I was just it's like, that's the, 
the nature of it and it actually opens the doors, but some of these doors are great, but for some of them, it enables people to produce crap at a faster rate. You know, you just saw this happen industry after industry. It's like you get to the point where, wow, we've democratized something and we've made it easy for people to use it. When we then started to fill up things with stuff, which we know this is like, it's crap. And you don't have a way of actually determining what to look at if there's too much of it. So you end up with problems you didn't see were coming. And you also end up with new things that you didn't expect. It's just like, okay, that's what happens all the time. It's like, it's okay. <laughs> and they're tough problems. And I mean, I didn't mean to say, well, it's just, uh, you're blase about it. But that challenge is a real challenge. And it's one that we take on and we should take on. And if we try to avoid it or miss it, then we actually get run over by it. Ed, this has been such a fun chat and, you know, just reflecting on the scope of your career and your influence from these early days where the intersection of technology and film and visual arts were nascent and you were playing a big role in shaping that, your role with Lucas Films, your role in shaping Pixar and building this creative culture. And now with your expanded book, Creativity Inc., which is hugely influential with so many different companies and cultures that are trying to create this sustainable creative culture, there's a lot to be proud of. But I wonder, like, when you think back on your career or just your life in general, what is it you're most proud of? Well, I, I was very aware at the time, this is when I was at Pixar, it's like, how do I feel about things? Because we got some awards and I got some personal awards and they were nice. I was happy to have them. I don't, you know, I'm not going to say that wasn't true, but I say the thing that probably made me feel the best was when I would be in a meeting with people at Pixar and we're working on a really hard problem. And I came out of it because we didn't solve it. But in that meeting, people weren't looking at Jim, who's now the president, and they weren't looking at me like, what are you going to do about it? The tone of the meeting was, what are we going to do about this problem? And so they felt like this ownership. And I came out of those meetings with this really buoyant feeling. Like, <laughs> I'm so glad that I'm working with these people. I love these people because they're partners in solving the things. And I just love that relationship. And it's probably the most meaningful thing and the most meaningful memories to me, which and they're also emotional when I say, oh, like it's theirs. I don't want it to be mine. I want it to be theirs. I feel better about it. Yeah. I got to say, that is one thing that really struck me in reading the book and also just talking to you is how it seems like you were always operating in service of others and the creative idea into something bigger. I don't know. It just strikes me as very fulfilling and meaningful. Yes. Yeah, like, why are we doing anything? Are, are we doing it because we're working with people and we're, to me, like we're connected with them? It was actually something I, I meant to put in the first version of it, but I got dropped out, but I did add on this one. But it was because I did ask this question, and I, which I recognized at the time was kind of a selfish question, which is right after Toy Story came out, was how much of it was me. And I thought about it for a while, and I knew completely well that all these other people were part of making this happen. So it was John Lasseter and Andrew and Pete Doctor and Lee and Steve and George. And a lot of people who are absolutely critical 
that other people we wouldn't even know about. So there's no point in saying their names because nobody knows them. But they were all part of this. And I knew that. But I still had this question. I was, okay, well, yeah, I, I get that. But how much of it was me? And at the end of the year, I realized, oh, actually, trying to answer that question is an act of separation. And that isn't what happened. There is no separation. There is no line. The notion that I could say that this is part that's me is actually not the right path to go down. I know why it comes up with people. And I know some people actually want to feel compelled to answer it. And for me, the realization was, is trying to answer that leads you down a bad path. That we really are doing this together. And if we do this well, then it's very fulfilling it's emotionally fulfilling, and it makes a difference. Ed, that's the perfect place to conclude our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. What a treat to talk to you. Well, Eli and Aaron, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks so much, Ed. It was a pleasure. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.